Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Just joining us this morning, we're in message number four in a series called God Designed Marriage. And we're looking to uh, build a strong Christian home according to God's Word. So, so far, we've laid a foundation uh, by looking at the culture, how um, marriage affects culture, culture affects marriage. That was our first message. We've also laid so far two building blocks in this house. One called the canvas, where we looked at how marriage paints a theological picture for the world about who God is and what He is like. And today we're going to expand on that a little bit. But uh, then we looked at, after that, building block number two, the covenant. And we discussed the difference between a covenant, which is an unconditional, sacred promise, and a contract, which is something that's conditional and disposable. And these messages are available online. If you're interested in in going through them today, we're going to lay the third building block called the charge, the charge. And what I'm calling the charge is the first matter of importance conducted during a marriage ceremony, and we call this sometimes the the declaration of intent, where uh, once the bride has walked down the aisle, ushered by her father, which was modeling Genesis chapter 2, the father giving Eve to Adam, there's an exchange that takes place. You guys remember that? There's some questions we ask the groom and the bride and the father. Before the father of that bride gives his daughter to the, to the groom, he and her mom need to know that this groom is going to keep the charge committed to him in Scripture, to love unconditionally this, his, this new bride of his. And so I'll actually say to the groom, the Scripture instructs you to lead Well, his father needs to know this, right? That this young man is going to lovingly care for his daughter, and I, as the officiant, need to know that this husband-to-be is going to keep the charge God's given him. And so I'll say this. The Scripture instructs you to lead by loving your wife unconditionally, just as Christ unconditionally loves and leads his church. Will you receive her as a gift from God, given to you as your wife, your helpmate, and completer? Those are the words that I'll say to them. Will you accept her as a perfect gift? to be designed, to be used of God, to accomplish the work which He's begun in you, conforming you to His image. And to which the groom responds in that solemn moment. I mean, we're not even up on stage yet, probably. We're down here on the floor. We're not even going to get to the vows unless we deal with this declaration of intent. And the groom at this point, he's probably, you know, got some tears in his eyes because he's, he's watched 
Um, his, his, his bride to be walked down the aisle. He's probably got some sweaty and shaky hands. And, and, and I say, will you accept her? And he's, will you lead her? And his response is, I will. I will. And then I'll say, if you don't, remember that your father-in-law owns a shotgun. <laughs> right? That's just a joke, but sometimes I want to say that. But then echoing that, I'll turn to the, the bride because the groom needs to know that the bride is going to keep the charge committed to her by God. I'll say the scripture instructs wives to respectfully submit to their husbands just as the church respectfully submits to Christ. Will you receive your husband as a perfect gift from God designed to be used of God to accomplish that sanctifying work which he's begun in you? To which she responds with, I will. And remember, if you don't hold up your deal, my father's got a shotgun. I'm just kidding. But then, then comes that famous question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? The father says, her mother and I. And at that point, the groom may receive his bride. We go up on stage and we, we do more, right? But I doubt you've ever really thought about this because I honestly didn't until I had the responsibility of actually officiating a marriage ceremony. But the couple's response there at the declaration of intent is one of the most important parts of the ceremony. Not that it would ever happen, but think about this. If in response to the charge given to them from Scripture, if one of them says, I won't, or I can't, I'm sorry, I, I won't love my wife, or I won't respect my husband, the ceremony ends right then and there. The cake is never cut. The gifts are all returned. Everybody goes home disappointed. Why? Because the biblical charges for the husband to lovingly lead his wife and for the wife to respectfully submit to her husband's leadership are immensely consequential to the health and the oneness of that marriage. It's so important that if they say, I will not, or like, sorry, I won't, it ends right then and there, and we never say our vows. Think about that. Howard Hendricks, in his book, Heaven Help the Home, said, A discernment of roles is absolutely indispensable for purposeful living, for marital efficiency, and for family functioning. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the marriage roles, and sadly, Guys, in a post-modern, skeptic culture that challenges today God's design for marriage with the intention of overthrowing it and with the church today unknowingly soaking up all of the worldly, unbiblical concepts of marriage, I'm afraid at these marriage ceremonies that the declarations of intent on the part of the husbands and the wives have become nothing more than anachronistic formalities. And what I mean by that is that we say these things and do them, but we don't really understand what we're doing. These, this, this, this charge for me to love my wife, lovingly lead my wife, and for her to respectfully submit to the husband. They don't fit with our modern times. They don't fit 
the culture's ideas of how marriage should be, but we do them for the sake of tradition. And that's all it is. It's pretty, nice-sounding, traditional words that make us feel happy and feel good, but we all know we have no intention of actually carrying them out. It's one of my greatest fears at a marriage ceremony is that we all think it's just pretty flowers and and linen everywhere and fine-sounding words, and we actually have no plans of keeping the vows that have just come out of our mouths, the promises, because we've soaked up the world's way of doing marriage. And that's evident by the divorce rate among Christians being almost identical to non-Christians. One of the clearest and key scriptures today on this subject of biblical roles that we're going to turn to now is Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. And as we read, please do not let this just be a formality or some ancient ideal in some ancient culture in the East somewhere that's just lost its significance today. This Ephesians chapter 5 is instruction for your marriage now. This is God's instruction for your, your marriage and whether or not you heed it, you actually apply it to your life is going to be the difference between building your marriage on rock or building your marriage on sand. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. Paul is wrapping up an encouragement to this entire congregation at Ephesus and, uh, and to all other churches, basically, because this was an encyclical letter. It was sent to Ephesus, and Ephesus was to copy it and send it to all the other churches. And he's, he's, he's telling the church how to be spirit-filled. Spirit-filled people give thanks, they praise, and they submit to one another. And submission, then, uh, that's, that command for the church congregation to submit to one another then becomes the subject for the rest of the chapter as we all have relationships that require both authority and submission. And so verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body." For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So again, we're looking today at the, the topic of marital roles here, and they're clearly outlined in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Peter 3. And, and when we think of a role, okay, I think uh, we should think of a duty or a responsibility rather than a right. That's at least that's how I like to think of them. This is my duty. This is my responsibility. The husband's responsibility is to be the head or leader and initiator in love. He lovingly leads his wife. And by the way, all of the biblical uses of the word head and all of the extra biblical ancient uses of the word head mean, signify authority and leadership. Okay, that's what's in mind, authority and leadership. The wife dovetailing that role of leader is then the supporting helpmate in respectful submission. Each spouse both needs love and respect, but based on their roles, these primary responsibilities are fitting. As a leader, a husband primarily is going to need respect. Leaders need respect. And then as, uh, as, the, as the wife, in a more vulnerable Role of submission, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 3, she needs love. You do not take advantage of her. You love her. You sacrifice for her. And the first thing I, and I think Paul, wants us to see is the need for mutual submission in that relationship. In the marriage relationship, we see the necessity of mutual submission. And to be honest, due to the misuse and uh, redefining of this term, mutual submission, by the feminist egalitarian movement in the last century or so, this term leaves a really bad taste in my mouth. I, am almost, I almost don't even want to use it because of the way feminists use it today. They use it to erase biblical roles. Okay? They say, well, we're supposed to submit to each other, and because of that, then we just don't have you know, leader and support anymore. We don't have leader and helper. But we need to talk about mutual submission in respect to not just the marriage relationship, but all relationships, because submission is an all-day, everyday Christian virtue, isn't it? I mean, all of us are called to submit to the Lord, submit our lives to the Lord, yield our lives to the Lord, and all of us have relationships, like you as an employee with your boss, Right where there's this structure of authority and submission, there the, the your boss or whatever is probably the head of your company, and it just it drives me mad the way the feminists treat submission as a curse word today. They call it the S word, submission. Right, this word just sometimes people hear it and it just sends lightning bolts through their veins. Oh, how dare he say that word, right? But are not all Christians called to submit? to Christ and His Word. Don't we all submit to a heavenly Father? And don't we submit to Christ, who is our husband, right? The wife's primary submission is not first to her husband, but to Christ, her husband. In submission to Christ as her husband, she submits to her husband. Paul and Peter these apostles, in both of their instructions, in calling wives to submit at the same time, within the same context, 
tell Christians to submit to one another. They tell servants, submit to your masters. We might say employees, submit to your bosses. They tell children, submit to your parents, citizens to government. So it's not like women are alone in this deal, right? We all submit. We submit just as Christ, who from all of eternity past has submitted to the Father. It's Christ-like. And Christ has submitted to the Father from all of eternity past without losing His worth or dignity, right? So we're going to talk more about that today. But Peter says in the beginning lines of his teaching on submission, if you want to read about what Peter had to say about this, look at 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. Uh, they're, they're pretty much a mirror, a mirror of what uh, Paul does in Ephesians 5 and 6. So Peter says in his, like right off the bat, when he's getting ready to talk about submission, he says, this is part of what makes you strange in this world. Through our Christ-like gentleness and our reverence, through our, our, our submissive hearts, yielding in service to other people, serving other people, he says, you're proving to be, remember this, aliens and strangers. Why is that? Because submission this world hates that word. <laughs> We're too proud. We don't want to submit to anybody, right? So when you actually do have a submissive heart, you're an alien. You're a stranger. You, you, people can see this guy's not normal. He's a freak show, right? This guy's weird. This person's weird. This wife is weird. But isn't it true? We don't have to always have our way. At least we shouldn't. We shouldn't always be first. Jesus said the first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. But if you try to exalt yourself, you try to be first, you refuse to yield to anybody, you're going to be humbled. And, and, and the question out there is, well, what about, you know, what about these harsh husbands and these unruly leaders? And Peter says, well, that's even better reason to respond to them with gentleness and reverence and respect. Because he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So look at what he says to, to wives in, in 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives, be submissive in the same way as what? In the same way as I've talked about masters and slaves and children in the same way, wives, be submissive to your husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Isn't that amazing? Paul's saying these guys, are, they're unreasonable, they're unruly, they're harsh. He says, great, let them see how strange you are. Let them see how weird Christians are. Let them see that you're not of this world. That... Again, he's not saying, and Paul's not saying, that we, we disobey God in order to obey them, right? You don't disobey God in order to obey an authority above you. But even if you have to disobey them in order to obey God, because sometimes those in authority of you are going to ask you to do things that go against God's word. He says, even if they ask you to do that, you disobey, but you do it with respect and, and gentleness, right? So today, guys... Uh, we need to think clearly about this word submission. 
we have to really think clearly about it. And I, I feel like I've had to think more clearly about it than I ever have in my life this week preparing this sermon. We all have relationships where there is structured authority and submission. But at the same time, this, this, this mutual submission that we're talking about, yielding and service to one another, does not negate those relationships. We're all called to submit to one another, but that doesn't negate authority and submission in structured relationships. Make sense? Wayne Grudem said, while submission is a quality that modifies all relationships, it must also define the structure of some relationships. I couldn't have said that better. Submission is a Christ-like virtue that characterizes every Christian. It's part of what it looks like, Paul says, to be spirit-filled. And... uh, In every relationship, there's going to be reciprocity. There's going to be give and take. But that doesn't mean we throw out authority and submission altogether, like between a husband and a wife. Yesterday, let's let's just look at what this looks like to have some some mutual submission in our lives. I was watching my kids play yesterday. You think they play nicely? They're like competing to go down this little red slide into a little kiddie pool. They're arguing and bickering and pushing each other to, to... to get down the slide first, what should they have done? Submit to one another, right? My oldest daughter probably should have yielded to her little brother. You go first. You see that? How that plays out? That's a practical example. Today, think about this in church. God forbid a new person walks into the, in, in the door uh, before you do and gets here before you do and sits in your seat. God forbid, right? What do you do? Do you say, hey, new person, don't you realize that's my seat? Get out of here, right? Hit the road, Jack. That's not what you do. You say, hi, what's your name? You yield to them, right? Hi, what's your name? Welcome. How can I pray for you? You don't even mention that's your seat. Seat doesn't have your name on it anyway. But think about this in marriage. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7 gives just a wonderful example of mutuality in marriage. Paul, in teaching on the intimate side of relationships, says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. So in, in marriage, two become one, you're not your own anymore, so you end up yielding. You can't say what they're saying today, my body, my choice in marriage, because two are one now. So, so there's got to be reciprocity in your marriage relationship. There's some give and take, a voluntary, not demanding, the, the, the wife's not telling the husband, you know, you, you, you quit depriving, you know, they don't, it's not a forced thing. This is a voluntary yielding of myself to my spouse. It's not demanding. It's free. It's not forced. And the best analogy of mutuality is none other than right there in Ephesians chapter 5, the head in relation to the body. So the, the head of your literal body, right, your dome, your rock, if there's, is there something in there? Anyway, um, this thing that sits on top of your shoulders is in charge of the rest of your body. Does not this thing tell your body what to do, right? So, sometimes your head is going to tell your body, which is an authority over your body, it's going to tell it to do something, and your body's going to say, 
I can't do that. Every summer, about this time, right before fur trade days or heritage days and alliance, my head will say to my body, we're going to run that 5K in a record time. And my body says, no way, Jose, hey, we're not doing it. You haven't prepared, you're going to hurt me, right? <laughs> and so my head says, all right. Why is that? Because hurting the body, doing that to the body, isn't going to do any good for the head, right? The husband, the head, will yield to the needs of his wife, his body, if, uh, if, if it's not going to help him out, right? Because you're, you're a team. Because the, the head and body are one, it doesn't do any good for the head to abuse the body. This is a fun analogy. Okay, but now let's think about this. Imagine that I actually do prepare properly for this 5K. I have, I have put in the practice, I've ran. I know I can run it. And so as we're running it, let's imagine that I'm two and a half miles into this thing. I've only got a half mile to go, and my body starts to say, oh, we have to stop, right? We, I can't go on at that point. It's the responsibility of the head as the leader of the body to say, no, don't quit. We've done this a thousand times. You can do it. And then the body, even though it feels like giving up and not doing what the head's telling it to do, it'll yield to the head, and then in the end it'll find satisfaction because they finish the race. Isn't that funny? So the more you think about this analogy of the husband and the wife as a head and a body, the more precious it becomes. Wayne Grudem writes, the, the head is the ruling place of the body, but not superior to the body, and dependent upon the body as the body is dependent upon it. Isn't that great? I'm quoting him a lot because he has a fantastic book, and it's free online. There's a PDF, and it's called uh, The Biblical Foundations of Manhood and Womanhood. I would highly recommend it. Anyway, the other night, I came home from work, and I was planning to go out for a men's deal, a men's deal later that evening. But after talking to my wife at dinner, I, th I knew that that night was just not the night. I could tell the kids had made my wife depend upon God's grace a little more that day than usual, and she just needed some adult companionship. She needed to talk to somebody who wasn't six years old or younger. Right? So, what do you think I did? I hung out with my wife. I knew that it wasn't going to do me any good to, to leave my wife that night. I mean, it's just these little decisions, these little yieldings throughout the day. I yielded to my, in love to my wife that night because if she's not well, I'm not well. And so, there is some truth to that saying, right? Happy wife, happy life. There is some truth to it because... We're now one flesh. If she hurts, I hurt. If I hurt, she hurts. Well, two are one flesh. Now again, this, does, this mutuality does not negate the marital roles that we're looking at next, the necessity of marital roles. Oh, I had a 5K picture. How about that? forgot about that. Um, the necessity of marital roles, that's our second heading. And I say necessity because there's no way around this if you want God's blessing on your marriage. 
The first question that I ask any couple that's considering premarital counseling or considering me marrying them, the first thing we do when, I, when we sit down in my office is I say, what do you want, why do you want to get married in a church and by a pastor? And I've only had the opportunity to ask that a few times, but I can imagine that most couples essentially say this, and the ones that I've spoken with have essentially said this, well, we want God's blessing on our marriage. That's why we want to get married in the church by a pastor. I want God's blessing. And then to which I would respond, if we want God's blessing on your marriage, don't you think we should do things God's way? Because there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of folks out there that have nothing to do with God or the church, but all of a sudden when they want to get married, they want to get married in a church. And it's like, well, what's the point? Why? I think it'll be God's blessing just to get married in a church with stained glass windows. You know, it, so we have to do things God's way if we really want His blessing. And we don't have to wonder what God's way is because it's clearly revealed in His Word. And I want to give us now four principles to remember concerning biblical marriage roles. And we're only going to look at two of them today because um, um, I just had too much material. That's why. <laughs> the first one is that uh, roles are biblical, not philosophical. Roles are biblical, not philosophical. We could say basically... Roles are God's idea. They're not man's idea. Man did not come up with this. Paul did not come up with this. Peter did not come up with this. God did. God did. Whenever I read a feministic article or a book trying to explain away these biblical roles like we've read about in Ephesians chapter 5, I almost want to die and roll over in my own grave. If, you, if that's possible, I would do that because of the hoops that these feminists are jumping through and the, to try and avoid the plain teaching of Scripture. It's, it's embarrassing to read it. It'd be kind of, that's kind of a weird way to put it, though, dying and rolling over in your own grave before you actually die. But that's kind of how it makes me feel. Because these the scholarly feminists, the ones who have the doctorates, will write articles and books, and, and they make these fine-sounding arguments, but they're avoiding all of this incredibly clear <laughs> uh, mounds of information out there on this subject. They're just... Even the scholars. And then you, you look at the unscholarly feminists that write these articles and books, and, and you know what they resort to? They don't have all that, the knowledge. And so they resort to emotional pleas and statistics to try to explain away biblical roles. They get very pragmatic, but it all boils down to ultimately just a plain rejection of God's word for their own ideas and how they think marriage should be. And that's the way most of the world operates. It's the same reason we don't submit to Christ, isn't it? We're just too proud. We think we know better than God. We're going to try it our way first. One of the most popular verses that a feminist uses to support their position, and I'm not harping totally on feminists. I know that feminists have done some good you know, out there. right? They've helped establish voting rights and, and, and property rights, women, you know, they've done a lot of good for women, but it's just like the social justice movement. They can take it too far, right? Um, male headship, or headship's toxic and all these things. Like, women are equal, yes, but that doesn't diminish biblical roles. And it's just like that social justice movement. It started out really well, right? 
Intentions were really well. We want equal rights, no matter what your skin color is. Hallelujah, we all want that. But now, we don't have equal rights anymore. Actually, if you're a minority, you have special privileges, and you get into college before I do, even though my grades were better, and I worked harder than you. You get in faster, too. We don't, we're not equal anymore. And I get labeled with white guilt because I'm a Judeo-Christian male, white male. I'm inherently guilty. So they can take these things too far. But again, Galatians chapter 3 is one of the most popular verses feminists use. And it's, um, it says this. I thought I had a slide for that. Sorry, I've been a long week. For, it says this. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, so Paul is saying here there's no, neither male nor female. And so in Christ, and so we're all sons of God in Christ, and you can see how they would take this verse and then use it to argue against gender-based roles in marriage. There's neither male nor female in Christ. But as Bereans who just went through Galatians a few years ago, many of you, right? I'm sure you can tell me what the context of Galatians chapter 3 is. Is Paul in Galatians ever talking about marriage? Does Paul talk about marriage in Galatians? Is he agreeing with our culture that genders are fluid? There's neither male nor female? Paul doesn't understand this? Or Paul understands this gender fluidity stuff? Now go home and read through Galatians. The whole book from beginning to end is all about being saved by grace through faith in Christ and living by grace through faith in Christ. Paul is saying that before God in Christ we're equal. In creation and in redemption we're all made in the image of God, male and female, and we're all saved the same way. I mean, regardless of our race, regardless of our gender, Regardless of our social status, we're all saved by grace through faith in Christ. We're all one in Him. We're level at the foot of the cross. No one's going to get into heaven a different way other than by grace through faith in Christ. That's the purpose of the book of Galatians, to show there's no favoritism, no superiority before God. No one's going to work their way to heaven. We're all getting in by grace. There's no mention of marriage there. Just as, is, is, just as it is in case with the church body, just like a local church body, we're all equal, right? But we have different functions. God does not give us all the same spiritual gifts. Um, there's leadership in the church, right? There's diversity in the church. And God does not forsake diversity for unity. Does that make sense? So, feminists, try, feminists trying to write off all of these clear teachings on marriage, what they're doing is they're actually falling right in line with the curse on sin. The curse of sin that brought in all of this ugly, dominating chauvinism and then the usurping feminism. Chauvinism and feminism the battle of the sexes are a result 
of sin. You guys remember Adam. Adam was created first. He was to lead his wife, and then they were to rule over creation together. But what happened? Satan became, entered into a serpent, a part of creation. Eve, Adam doesn't lead his wife. Eve listens to creation, and so that whole authority and submission structure just went like that. It was totally turned upside down. And ever since then, part of the curse is that that's going to be normal. That's going to be natural. Actually, God told Eve, uh, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This was part of the curse. That desire there is not a good desire. It's an aggressive desire to conquer and to rule over her husband, to take the place of headship. And the only other place Moses uses that word is in the next chapter, in chapter 4, where there's this mirrored expression. God says to Cain, sin's crouching at your door. It's desires for you, but you must master it. So Eve's desire to be an authority over her husband is a sinful desire. And then his chauvinistic reaction to harshly misuse his authority by sheer brute strength because he's created stronger than the woman is equally sinful. Both of those, the feminism and the chauvinism, are devastating distortions of what God originally intended. But that's normal today. And if that interpretation of Genesis 3.16 is correct, you'd find you would expect to find in the New Testament teaching that would undo that, right? That would teach against the wife trying to rule over her husband. It would teach against the husband ruling harshly over his wife, and that's exactly what you find in the New Testament. The wife's pride is to be replaced with respectful submission, and the husband's harsh rule is supposed to be in in loving compassion now. So, uh, secondly, let's look at this, how roles are theological not cultural. Just like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the husband and wife's main purpose is to glorify God. That's the big vision. Glorify God with your marriage. You are painting a theological picture of God for the world. Marriage parallels that Trinitarian oneness and plurality that that is within the Godhead, and then it also uh, parallels Christ's relationship with the church, as we've looked at in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we've said that our marriages are a lot like a Bible class, where the truth is not only taught verbally, it's actually caught by your actions, your behaviors, how you relate to one another. If my kids want to know how Christ loves the church, I should be able to say to them, watch how I love your mom. And if they want to know how the church should respond to Christ, I should be able to say to them, watch how your mom responds to me. That's what our, our, our marriages paint a picture. It's a theological picture for the world. But in order to erase biblical roles, what the false teachers do is they speak of roles as something temporal and cultural. It's a temporal, cultural construct back in the East somewhere, right? It's, that's what we have to convince people of, that this is just a cultural construct, and, and since we're not in this culture, then, then, then the, the roles don't matter. But what you notice in the New Testament is that when Paul argues for these things, what do you, what's he arguing from? He's arguing from God's Trinitarian essence or nature. And he's arguing from the order of creation and the events that took place at creation. Basically, before culture was even a thing, roles were established. 
Regarding male leadership in the church, which the feminists hate, 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 says it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived. That's one of the reasons he gives. He goes back to the order of creation and what happened in Genesis chapter 3. It has nothing to do with the culture. So look at 1 Corinthians eleven three and 8. I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Why? Because Adam was created first. However, he goes on to say, however, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Now, you might have to think that through a little bit, but Paul's reasoning here for male headship is from the order of creation before culture was ever a thing. And it's kind of weird, isn't it, to think about did Adam, did Adam come out of Eve or Eve out of Adam? Isn't that funny to think about? This is like our culture would love this today for a, a woman to come out of a man. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to say it. Oh, the depravity. (laughs) This is the one place in history where a woman actually came out of a man, and it was not from his head or from his feet, but from his side, signifying partnership, support. It also signified headship, right? And her supporting role as a helpmate and equality and everything. It's just such a beautiful thing that God did at creation. The way God created Adam first and then Eve from Adam was intentional on God's part to undeniably teach male headship in the social structure of the family and the church. The word elder is masculine. They're to be men. However, I would also inform us, we need to know this, that the Bible does not teach male headship over, like all men over all women. So, Again, we're, we're submit, submitting to the church leaders, the elders, and then we're also going to, the wives are called to submit, not to all men, but to their husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. So, I just needed to make that clear. But so, that, Adam being created first and Eve from Adam, that screams headship. But then, you also see male headship kind of whispered. By the way that Adam, who is made to rule over creation, starts naming all of the animals before Eve's even created. In the Bible, when you name someone, um, it's an expression of authority. Kind of like you guys, you have authority over your kids, therefore you, you name them. When a king in the Old Testament actually took another king captive, he would rename that king to express his authority over that, new, that king. Um, what else was there? Daniel. Remember Daniel and his friends. They're taken captive. What does Nebuchadnezzar do? He renames them. He gives them new names after his own gods. What's the first thing Adam does when he sees Eve after God creates Eve? The father brings Eve to him. Adam, 
Adam names her. He says, she shall be called woman. So he classifies her. And then, and then in, in chapter 3, verse 20, he gives her a personal name, Eve. So he both classifies her, gives her a name that way, and then gives her a personal name. And so you see headship whispered in that. But you also see the equality and oneness in that she is taken from him and from his side and made for him. And together they rule over God's creation together, kind of like Christ and the church in the millennium. So lots of heavy theology today, huh? Good stuff. Um, in the Corinthian statement there that you're looking at, it says, the head of Christ is God. Isn't that weird? Doesn't that strike you a little bit? Because aren't the Father and the Son co-eternal and co-equal? They're equal in power, they're equal in dignity, they're equal in worth. We would all agree that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally God, all equally uh, worthy of our worship, and yet Paul presents Christ as submissive to the Father. Does that mean he's not equal anymore? He's inferior to the Father? No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there's a parallel between the relationship of the Trinity and the relationship between the husband and the wife. Their equality and differences and unity reflect that Trinitarian relationship. And that tells us that roles existed before creation even started, before creation even happened. Roles have existed. The idea of headship and submission, it never even began. It's existed throughout all of eternity past. It's always existed in the eternal Godhead himself. Isn't that awesome? In the nature of God. And this is why the Trinity, guys, it creates such a problem for feminists because they try to force people, Wayne Grudem says, they try to force people to choose between equality and authority. Don't you see this going on in our culture everywhere? They try to force us to choose between equality and authority. They say, if you have male headship, then you can't be equal. And if you are equal, then you can't have male headship. And our response is that you can have both. Just look at the Trinity. Look at the Trinity. Within the being of God, you have both equality and authority and submission. And one such example is is God in regards to salvation, the Godhead. The Father plans salvation, the Son carries it out in submission to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to Christ in, in that, and that He applies salvation to our lives. Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit. So they all have different roles, but they're all equal, and it's amazing, and, it, and it's, it's, it's functional. It's not personal. It's about harmony and functionality. So when we begin to dislike the very idea of authority and submission, not the distortions and abuses, but the very idea of it, we're tampering with something that's very deep, deeper than most of the people in this world will ever think in regards to God and how it affects our lives. We're beginning to dislike God himself, the nature of God. The husband and wife are equal before God, one man said, but in order for the family to function in harmony, the woman, with no loss of dignity, takes the place of submission to the headship of her husband in the same way that Christ, without the loss of dignity, took the place of submission to the headship of his heavenly Father. And, he says, and that man says, now when we understand that, we can stop all of the silly stuff. 
God's perfect design for a family is such that he made it so that the woman's tenderness and her gentleness are to dovetail with the husband's strength and leadership. So that's our second point. The third and fourth that we're going to look at next week are how roles are functional, not personal, and roles are free, not forced. Basically, they're voluntary. And I want to end with what I think is a logical appeal to the egalitarian who is suspicious of male headship. Let's rewind our minds now back to that wonderful, glorious summer of 2020. Oh, right, that ugly summer of 2020. COVID has hit. Everyone's wearing masks. People are losing their minds. George Floyd refuses to submit to an officer. Probably drugged up, if I remember it right. He refuses to submit to an officer. The officer, in response, abuses his authority, right? Mobs start burning, they start looting, and they're chanting, defund the police. Let's just get rid of these police. Was that the proper response? No. Why? And one of the things that told us it was the wrong response was when all of these mobs that were protesting experienced some opposition, and guess who they called? The police, right? (laughs) And by then, many of the police officers, they just felt handcuffed themselves. They just kind of stood by and watched. Remember that? So that they didn't get sued or something else. People who abuse their authority are inevitable. It's going to happen. That's what sinners do. There will always be a few officers here and there who abuse their authority, but that doesn't mean we throw out the whole police force. I mean, you saw the chaos that ensued as a result of trying to do that. In the same way, guys, just because there are a very few chauvinistic and lazy domineering husbands out there who abuse their authority doesn't mean you throw out complementarianism altogether. And that's what we're talking about today, how the the sexes complement one another, the husband and wife complement one another. Just because there's an abusive husband out there and you experienced one, you grew up with one, doesn't mean you throw out the idea altogether because he's not representing true true complementarianism. Make sense? It's kind of like throwing out the whole police force because of one bad cop. True complementarianism is a selfless, loving husband leading his wife. He's considerate of her whole person. Why? Because she's part of him. So he cares about how she feels. He cares about how she's her health. He cares about her physically. He cares about her emotionally. He cares about her, her did I say physically, emotionally, spiritually? He cares about her in every single way. He cares about her thoughts, her ideas. He knows that she's got some wisdom that, that, that he doesn't have. He's going to listen to her, right? He's not a wimp. He's not a tyrant. He's a man desiring spiritual maturity. He's in the Word of God, soaking up the Word of God so that he can be a good spiritual leader in his home. And he can lead his family well. That's a biblical husband.
dovetailing him is that selfless, joyful wife who respects her husband's intelligent, sacrificial, prayerful leadership. She refuses to live in one of those unhealthy, codependent relationships where she just can't make any decisions on her own and has to rely completely on her husband. Guys, that's an error too. It's kind of like the church, depending on the leaders in the church to do everything for them. That's an unhealthy codependent relationship. You can take it too far. Okay, she refuses to live in an unhealthy codependent relationship. We'll talk more about that next time. But she also refuses to usurp his headship. And my question to us today is, what kind of husband and wife do you want to be? I mean, just flat out. What kind of husband and wife do you want to be? Don't look at Ephesians 5, guys. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know why I'm so passionate about this. I'm just sick of the feminism. And I'm sick of the males abusing their authority. What do you want to be? I mean, are, are, do you want to be the, you know, the, the, the passive and wimpy husband? Or the tyrant? Or do you want to be a loving and humble leader in your home? I fight the wimpy side of things more than anything. If I'm having a bad day, I fight the tyrant in me. I'll go sit in my recliner and I'll yell at my kids from the couch when they do something wrong. That's the tyrant. It's also a passive wimp in a sense because he refuses to actually take responsibility for his responsibility. Anyway, the wife, what kind of wife do you want to be? Do you want to be a doormat? That's what a lot of feminists think that submission is. It's, oh, it's just a, a doormat. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, Lord. That's not what it is. That's not a biblical picture of what, what it means to be a wife. And she's also not an usurper. I mean, which one do you want to be? A doormat, an usurper, or a joyful, intelligent, respectful, submissive wife? Basically, what I'm asking is, do you want to build your marriage on the rock or on the sand? God's word or your own ideas? And don't let some past in your life. Maybe you grew up with a tyrant dad or an usurping wife. Don't let that influence your decision. It doesn't have to. You submit to the word of God. And do things his way, no matter what your past says. Get over the past. Move on. Do things God's way. I know there's some people out there who need to hear that. Because in reaction to a tyrant husband, they've done away with male leadership altogether. A male who abused his authority. And my challenge to us this week is, Remember daily your charge as it pertains to you. Don't let marriage, the marriage ceremony, remember those words you said at your, your, at your marriage ceremony? Worship team, you want to come up? You remember those, those words you said? I will. I will lovingly lead my wife. I will respect my husband. Do you, do you still believe in those words that you, that you said? Those promises you made? 
those are those are those are words those are promises that we carry with us every single day in the marriage relationship husbands are you leading your family in love and wives are you respectfully submitting to your husbands Thank you.